0: Today on Working It with me, Isabel Berwick, we're talking about sex and love at work. Both are very common and very thorny issues. In fact, a recent survey by the American Society for Human Resource Management, a big trade body, found that a third of US workers are or have been involved in a relationship with a colleague, and half of them have had a crush on the co-worker. And all those figures have actually gone up during the pandemic. So maybe absence really does make the heart grow fonder. But I want to know, can you really mix business with pleasure and not get burnt? And in my hunt to find out, I met Andrew D'Souza and Michelle Romano, the founders and power couple behind ClearCo. It's a lending firm that offers a sort of alternative to venture capital and conventional investment. They lend to startups without taking a stake in the company in return. And for them, their business story and love story are irreversibly entwined.
1: So we started the company six and a half years ago together. I had moved back to Toronto. I'd lived in Silicon Valley for a few years and moved back to Toronto and was helping a couple of different tech companies to help them raise capital. And somebody introduced me to Michelle as she was raising money for her last business. And we sort of hit it off. We had so many common war stories. And I think our first few dates were... You know, in different cities, it was like San Francisco, New York, Chicago, Toronto. Talking um, about experiences with board members <laughs> when our companies almost fell apart. And I think there was a moment where my previous company, actually our board basically like cleaned house, brought in their own team. And this was probably four months into dating yeah. that I was like, hey, Michelle, I'm out of a job. And she's like, this is great. We're going to start a company. Yeah, and I, I like, did. What? I was like, what are we going to do? And I started the brainstorming. Andrew was scared to tell me the news. I was like, "This is the best news ever." I mean, it, was, it was a new relationship, and it was tough. I thought she'd think I was a total loser, and I was scared. I was like, "I'd never started a company before," and she's like, "No, I've got you, and we'll figure this out together."
0: So these are two very high flyers. Michelle's on the Canadian TV series Dragons Den. It's like Shark Tank in the U.S., where entrepreneurs pitch their ideas to Michelle and her fellow dragons to get funding. She's bootstrapped several companies, ranging from a caviar fishery to an app she sold to Groupon. And along with Andrew, the Silicon Valley fundraiser, six months into their romantic relationship, they start brainstorming what kind of business they can launch together.
2: And it was actually the experience of going on Dragon's Den, seeing all these founders give up 10, 20 percent of their company to get the capital they needed to buy, you know, effectively their ads and their inventory I remember, you know, coming home one night, talking to Andrew, being like, why are founders using the most expensive capital in the world for something that has a fixed return? And so him and I put our heads together and we're like, well, what if we could do this on a revenue share deal? And so I remember coming back to the show the next day, looking at the next founder that asked me for money and said, look, I'm going to give you that $100,000 you're looking for. But instead of asking for 10% of your business that I'm going to own forever, I just want 10% of your revenue until you pay me back my capital plus 6%. There's no personal guarantee or fixed payment timelines, and if you don't pay me back, I'm not gonna take your business. And that's how we came up with the idea. We've now invested more than $3 billion, 7,000 different founders in 10 countries around the world, which if you put it in perspective to the venture capital industry in the US, they invest 23 billion a year. So the fact that we're even a little piece of that pie chart I think is pretty incredible. And you know, Andrew and I built that together starting out of our apartment.
0: So to talk about power couples, love, sex, everything at work, I'm joined by Emma Jacobs, my colleague, and FT features writer and a Working It regular. Emma, welcome. Hi. <laughs> so listening to Andrew and Michelle, I can hear that there are loads of benefits for power couples working together. You know, But essentially, for me, I think never switching off is a problem. Have you talked to people about this when you've been researching features?
3: Yeah, definitely. People find it impossible to switch off. They're talking about it at dinner. And that's when you're still in a relationship. What happens if it kind of explodes and ends? What happens to the business then?
0: Yeah, although there are lots of examples of couples who've started very successful businesses. So Cisco and Eventbrite, for example, were both started by couples. And I think there's a huge section of venture capital money, which is interesting because Andrew and Michelle are running a venture capital company essentially, but there's lots of venture capitalists who like to invest in couples because they never switch off. It seems perverse, but actually it might be a very successful model.
3: I mean, I think some couples have made rules on not talking about things at dinner or trying to create some kind of boundaries between them, but I mean, it's inevitable that these boundaries change according to work patterns. And I guess most of us have now become colleagues of our partners because of the pandemic. we spent a lot of time at home. We're much more familiar with their work politics, the kind of boring stuff that you would overhear in an office if it was a colleague. So I think many more of us are getting introduced to this dynamic. Mm. What did you learn about your partner's work? Uh, He's a really noisy typer. You built a shed at the
0: bottom of the garden. We we did
3: build a shed at the bottom of the garden, so I prefer it when he's in
0: that. (laughs) But I wanted to go back to the beginning of all this, like why do workplace romances happen? We've had a big scandal in the UK where a government minister called (laughs) Matt Hancock had employed an old university friend As an advisor during the pandemic. And after 20 years of knowing each other, they got together during the pandemic. It became a big scandal. He had to resign. It was love. He couldn't do anything about it. Exactly. (laughs) That's his excuse. But I guess it's the amount of time we spend with people at work that makes it a fertile place.
3: Well, and also you sort of see a good side of them sometimes. I mean, sometimes people are. Obviously, their worst side at work, you know, they can be petty and pathetic and not very nice people. But often you see a kind of professional, slick version. I know that I heard some manager say that he actually quite liked people having relationships because they made a real effort and sort of showed off in the early stages of the relationship.
0: Oh, so that there's a real upside potentially. <laughs> potentially. We're showing our best selves at work, yeah. to potential partners. But when you're both nurturing a business, how do you look after the relationship side of that? And that was something that I wanted to ask Andrew and Michelle.
1: We did some vacations where we didn't talk about work. But look, I mean, when you're growing at the pace that we've been growing, that dominated a lot of the conversation, right? It was something, it was a passion that we both cared about. It's like parents that go on vacation, talk about their kids, you know, it's very, very similar. We cared about our employees. We cared about our customer. We cared about the future of the company. That was what dominated sort of our time and attention and really sort of dominated a lot of our relationship.
2: I mean, look, it makes it extremely efficient in the early days because you literally do not go to bed until you often solve an issue. <laughs> and I don't know how this happened with us, but we will go at an issue pretty passionately. We will both start with our own positions, but I'd say 90% of the time we actually don't end up compromising at A or B the conversation allows us to get to solution C, which genuinely is so much better that neither of us would have thought about on our own. And I think that's like the hallmark of a great relationship and especially a great co-founding relationship.
0: Sort of like don't go to sleep on a row, don't go to sleep on a work problem, I guess it could be.
1: That was it. That was it. We never let anything (laughs) sit. We would talk it through. there was a decision to be made, we would, yeah, that was exactly how it felt. Totally.
0: While the business was thriving, Michelle and Andrew's romantic relationship wasn't. And recently they decided to split. Now they have to deal with that part, the part that makes the headlines from the fallout of the relationship and how that impacts their $2 billion baby.
1: We knew that we wanted different things out of our personal lives long term. That didn't mean that we didn't care about each other. That didn't mean that we didn't love each other. That didn't mean that we weren't supportive of each other. But... It meant that we needed to take some time to sort of sort that part of it out and then figure out how the physical separation was going to affect the way that we worked.
2: I don't think we had a backup plan. And I think the only backup plan that we had is that we were both actually really reasonable and caring people at the end of the day. And I think that's actually probably the most important assessment you want to make if you're going to go into business with your partner. But I don't think we ever sat there and were like, so if we break up, what happens? Right. <laughs> we we're
1: just like... Let's let's do this. And There were, I mean, it's funny. There were investors who had said, you know, I would have invested in either Andrew or Michelle if they were starting a company, but as a couple, I can't invest. And they said no in the first round. They said no in the second yeah. round. And I think they finally invested, you know, at a hundred times the valuation yeah. that they could have gotten in because everybody who was going to invest with them was like, how do you not have clear code in, in your, your portfolio? portfolio? So there were definitely people who were hesitant to and, you know, change their mind. And look, we couldn't be happier to have built this business with each other. And in a lot of ways, we're a better team than ever. You know, taking the personal side of it out means that you don't take things as personally. Yeah. And it means that we can kind of be better professional colleagues. And so excited about this sort of new chapter of how our friendship and relationship evolves.
0: So it was interesting that Andrew and Michelle could, navigate their breakup on their own because they run the company. But in a bigger corporate, how do companies navigate A, relationships and B, breakups. Are there official guidelines on this or is it a lot more sort of touchy-feely? Or Well, I, I don't think there's a set pattern.
3: I mean, I think that some companies have guidelines, other ones don't. Some want you to declare any relationship. Some only want you to declare between a supervisor and somebody a direct report. Some don't have any rules at all. I mean, I think it is complicated because when is a relationship even a relationship? Is it the first kiss? Is it the first date? You know, when do you declare these things? And who feels that they apply to them? I mean, I think that in the past there have been examples of senior people just not thinking that the rules apply to them.
0: Well, recently the CNN CEO, Jeff Zucker, was sacked, wasn't he, or made to leave because he was having a relationship with a very, I think his number two, actually, a very senior woman in the company. And that was only a couple of months ago.
3: I mean, I don't know why he didn't declare that. It seemed, you know, it seems to have been consensual. And it just seems in that sort of situation, why would you not declare it? But I don't know. I don't know
0: what the situation was, okay. And I was thinking also, what's it like for other employees who, I mean, I've had been in this situation. <laughs> I <am. laughs> so I was in a workplace earlier in my career where I was a reporter on a, a newspaper and we had to physically move all our desks because two of the reporters were having an affair with each other which broke up quite spectacularly with shouting and rows in the office so we all had to move our desks so they didn't have to look at each other so it was really quite extreme so that was a sort of really physical iteration of what happens to your colleagues when you break up because it changes all the dynamics I think.
3: Well, I remember a, a colleague saying that he unwittingly had become the third leg in a affair because he hadn't realised that he was the kind of excuse to get these two out of the office. These things are difficult to navigate. Work's difficult, relationships are difficult when you combine the two. Because people are messy. I mean, people are messy. And, and if you think that somebody's getting preferential treatment, I mean, obviously, there's a whole spectrum of behaviours
0: here. And in the worst case scenario, these are harassment. So, what do you think is the best course of action for managers? I mean, I've been thinking about this. You know, should you be proactive if you suspect something? Should you question people, or do you just sort of, you know, slyly WhatsApp all your colleagues and say, "Do you think X and Y having an affair?" I mean, what's? I mean, with all this stuff, I guess
3: the best advice is to have an organisational culture that you feel that you can ask questions that you would hope elicit a good response. But, you know, you'd also have to feel that that colleague or that report can feel that they can talk to you about these things. And this varies a huge amount between department and organisations and also the rules. People aren't aware of policies. I mean, we can all think of policies that are kind of around behaviours in terms of ethical decisions that aren't applied uniformly in organisations because there's always some sort of preferential treatment so in an ideal world you would be able to talk to people without feeling that there's recrimination but also that these were equally applied throughout the workforce and not just some people turn a blind eye to behaviour that
0: other people are kind of pulled up over. Yeah as often it's corporate culture more widely that this reflects. So when I was talking to Michelle and Andrew, it became clear that all relationships at work can suffer from fallouts and intensity, not just romantic ones.
2: I think there's a lot of scrutiny that's put on to couples that start a business together. But the dynamic of co-founders is one of the hardest, most intimate relationships. People are inextricably linked. Their financial futures are entirely linked. How much work they put into the business is, you know, very, very linked. And I think the reality is, is that people put a lot of pressure on couple co-founders. But when co-founders fight, businesses go under a lot of pressure. And so everything we know about good communication, therapy, all of the things that actually make for very successful relationships, period, are really necessary as you build that co-founding relationship because there is so many challenges that you have to work on, then your business grows and it's not just the two of you anymore. It's you and your 500 children, which you happen to call employees, that all rely on you in a very different way. And then ultimately, it's about really deeply caring for your co-founder, no matter who they are. I mean, regardless of Andrew's in my personal relationship, I love him very deeply. I know exactly what makes him happy and we both want each other to be successful. And I think teams feel that. Teams feel when you want the people on your team and your co-founders to succeed.
0: So I understand what Michelle's saying there that and work is a lot better and often more productive when we get on well with our colleagues and we have nurturing and productive relationships with them. But there is this phenomenon that has come to the fore in recent years of the office spouse and I'm sure you've written about it and our colleagues have written about it Emma can you explain what it is because I think it's still quite recent and some people don't know what it is well I guess it's
3: the person that you turn to as your kind of confidant generally of the opposite sex and someone that you turn to and air ideas and they're your kind of natural go-to person I've never actually had one you've had one (laughs) <laughs> but we don't know if he thinks he is your spouse or not. <laughs> I know people who've had several as well.
0: Yes. So some people sort of seem to gravitate towards the office spouse relationship. But what did you get out of it? I was having a very difficult time at work. And my office spouse was a very calm and very nice man who would calm me down and acted as a kind of go-between between me and our mutual very difficult boss. So... For me, that was a very supportive relationship, but I'm not sure what he got out of it. (laughs) So I obviously gravitate towards these close relationships at work. But I know for many people, they come to work and want to keep to themselves. But I think they're missing out on a, a huge amount.
3: Yeah, I think some people like to keep things very, very separate. And sometimes I do and sometimes I don't. I mean, I don't even think that you're necessarily one type of person all the time. I think we could be one or the other. Yeah, depending on what was going on in your home life or work life.
0: And actually, when we spend so much time at work, and perhaps this is something that we've forgotten about a bit because of the pandemic, your work life can seem much more vivid to you than your home life. And there is that danger of the emotional affair, which the workplace spouse can tip over into. And in fact, there's this same American Human Resources survey said 28% of US workers have had someone they consider a work spouse. And of those workers, 26% felt romantic feelings towards that individual. <laughs> I mean, I suppose what you're not
3: doing is you're not doing the washing up. You're not liaising over the day-to-day of child care. I mean, obviously, you do a lot of boring things at work. But, you know, often work can be a place that you retreat to. You put nice clothes on. You make sure your hair's not greasy, or at least that's been me today. And, you know, and my partner at the weekend got a much more slovenly side of me where I'm not wearing makeup, (laughs) I'm not got anything very interesting to say for myself. You know, I could see that I could be more appealing at work than
0: I could be at home. You're very appealing at work, Emma. (laughs) I made the effort today. But I suppose the classic pitfall, and I'm really intrigued on how this will play out, is things like the conference or the office party, where we've had two years away. I think people are going to go a bit crazy. The addition of alcohol and colleagues, I think there's going to be an HR bonanza?
3: Well, I have to say that every time we kind of looked like we were opening up again, I kept getting loads of pitches from law firms saying, boom time for HR policies. You know, people are going to be so overexcited that they're just going to get drunk and cop off. I can't think of a right way <laughs> of <for> putting this <laughs> and just get it together with their office colleagues that they're so excited to see and that, you know, and they haven't been out and they haven't been. I mean, I don't know. We haven't actually had parties like this yet. <laughs> But I did actually stay somewhere recently that looked like it was a kind of retreat for work get-togethers where people were sort of making up for lost time. And I spoke to a woman there who'd taken her team away that they hadn't really got together for two years. And she said that she, quite sensible But her colleagues had gone to bed at seven o'clock in the morning and, you know, she was just getting up for a swim and it was just a very kind of different dynamic. There is a lot of
0: pent up excitement, but who knows where we'll go. Well, have you ever had a relationship in the office, Emma? Uh, Have I? (laughs) I think I have. Have you? Um, No. And in fact... I'm probably the worst person to talk about this because I went on holiday twice with two colleagues who turned out to have been in a relationship the whole time and I didn't notice for literally years. And I was sitting next to them all day and went on holiday with them. So, no points to me. I think it's really good to have policies at work around romance and relationships. It just offers some boundaries in an increasingly boundaryless world between work and home life. And I think Emma's point about having a rule that if you want to ask a colleague out, you can ask them out once. And if they say no, they mean no. That's a really clear rule that I think could be implemented right across the board and in our lives as well. But ultimately, we're all messy And there are some parts of this that are never going to be able to be held in check. There are always going to be offices where people are going to have to move desks to get away from colleagues. And that's just how it is. Lots of people meet their life partners at work. It's a great place to meet friends, colleagues and lovers. And I don't think we would ever change it. With thanks to Michelle Romano and Andrew D'Souza. And many thanks to our FT guest Emma Jacobs. And please do get in touch with us. We want to hear from you. We're at WorkingIt at FT.com or with me at Isabel Barrick on Twitter. If you're enjoying the podcast, we'd appreciate it if you left us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts. Working It is produced by Novel for the Financial Times. Thanks to the producer Anna Sinfield and executive producer Joe Wheeler. We have editorial direction from the FT's Renee Kaplan and production support from Persis
1: Love. Thank you for listening.